Let's open our Bibles now to Romans chapter 2, and tonight we'll take a look at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The book of Romans is not the easiest book in the Bible to study. In fact, it's, it's perhaps some of the deepest, if not the deepest theology, the most serious theology in all the Bible, comes from the book of Romans. Uh, perhaps the, in the Old Testament we might say the book of Isaiah. In the New Testament, it's the book of Romans, maybe the book of Ephesians. But this is a difficult and challenging book. After our last study, there were probably more questions about what was going on in the book of Romans than in any class that I've taught in the last 10 years. So uh, because there were so many questions, and good questions too, uh, I want to swing back around and take a few moments to make sure that we're all on the same page with regard to context, who Paul is talking to, what this whole book of Romans is about before we proceed any further. Because without a good overall grasp, overall picture, a grasp of the overall picture of what Paul is doing in Romans, the details that we study won't be very fulfilling. You've got to have the big picture, and everything's got to be slotted into somewhere in that big picture. Otherwise, the details just become detailified. So I, I'm glad that the questions came up. It gave me a chance to kind of see where everybody was. So I want to swing back around. I want you to listen very, very carefully. Even if you feel like you've already got the context and the overall setting of Romans down, I want you to listen very, very carefully because it's, there's a chance that you might not. So four quick facts about Romans. First, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul from Corinth in the winter of 56 to 57, so approximately 10 years before he dies. Romans is written by Paul from Corinth in the winter of 56 to 57. You have that on your uh, chart outline of Romans that's in front of you. Second, there is no evidence that Paul ever, ever ministered in Rome prior to his writing the letter. No evidence that he had ever been to Rome or ministered in Rome prior to his writing the letter. Third, this was a church, more accurately probably five house churches, that was founded by converts of Paul who had moved to Rome and who were away from Rome at the time that Paul gave them the gospel. And then they went back to Rome and started these churches. So that's why there's a more extended introduction to the book of Romans than any of Paul's other letters. You know, usually it's one or, one or two, maybe three, four, five at the most sentences that will introduce Paul in the letter. Well, here he doesn't know these folks. That's why we had such a long introduction. And sometimes you get so caught up in those introductions, you kind of forget where you are in the letter. But the introduction ran all the way, essentially, to chapter 1, verse 17. Um, but that's why there's an extended introduction, is Paul had never met most of these folks in uh, Rome. Now, this is the thing that, that may have been causing some confusion, so listen real, real carefully. Romans is written to believers. Romans is written to believers. Even though it speaks of salvation issues. Romans at times reads like a textbook on soteriology. Soteriology is a fancy name for the study of salvation. Or the doctrine of salvation. But Romans is more than just a theological paper on salvation. It's much more. It describes how a believer should live in light of that salvation. 
So this was a question that came up over and over again last week. They were, people were a bit confused. Romans is written to believers. And Romans is written to believers about soteriology. Just because, something, just because Paul tells us something about the gospel doesn't mean that it's uh, written exclusively to the unbeliever. It would be like you picking up John Wolvard's textbook on soteriology or Lewis Berry Chafer or Charles Ryrie and reading about the doctrine of salvation. Okay. That's what's going on at least in the first part of the book of Romans. Now, the purpose of the book of Romans, Paul, why did he write it? Paul wrote this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for several reasons. First, he wanted to prepare the way for his intended visit. Remember, he hadn't been there before, so this is a letter that's going to precede him to this city. Uh, he evidently hoped that Rome would become a base of operations for him because he wanted to, he had done, a, he'd done the work that he felt like he needed to do in the east, and now he's going to go west, and he's going to go to Spain. So Rome would be a nice dropping off point. So he's writing this letter for one reason, to prepare his way for that visit. Second, he wanted to minister to the spiritual needs of the Christians in Rome. Even though they're in fairly good spiritual condition, if you think of another church that Paul wrote to that was in a good spiritual condition, the next one that would come up probably be the church at Philippi. That was a good church already, but they needed to be better. And so Paul is writing to help them out. So a while I'm in ago, I, I, I indicated that this was, this was more than just a theological paper on salvation. I meant that. This, Paul didn't just write for the sake of writing. Paul was not like some PhDs that sit in their offices, never come out and see a person, and, and write because they have to publish or perish. Now, there are better things Paul could have done with his time than just write for the sake of writing. This had real meaning to real people. So the second reason that Paul writes it is to minister to real people, to minister to the spiritual needs. And third, the reason Paul wrote Romans, was, and wrote it as he did, was because he was at a transition point in his ministry, as I just mentioned a minute ago. His ministry in the Aegean, the east, was as solid as he felt like it needed to be at that time, and he planned to leave it and move into territory where people had not heard the gospel, namely Spain. If you kind of have a picture of that in your mind geographically, Spain is to the west of where Paul was. But before he does that, Paul is going to take a trip to Jerusalem. And he knows, he realizes that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be in danger. It turns out he was right. He was in danger. He does get arrested. So before he goes to Jerusalem, it's very likely that he writes Romans to leave a full exposition of the gospel in good hands if his ministry ended prematurely in Jerusalem. There's a lot of discussion about whether Paul was right or wrong to go to Jerusalem. Some people say he was wrong, that he was arrogant, that he was proud, that he was uh, just more interested in ministering to the Jews in Jerusalem than the Gentiles that God had sent him to minister to. I think that is garbage. There's no historical or biblical data for that at all. The fact that he runs into trouble in Jerusalem doesn't mean that he wasn't supposed to go there. Matter of fact, Paul says specifically the Holy Spirit led him there. Now, there was a prophet that came out and met Paul before he gets to Jerusalem. It says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. But that doesn't mean that Paul wasn't supposed to go. Paul said, I have to go. The Holy Spirit's making me go. So, no, it wasn't a... It's a gosh, it's so easy for us to sit back 2,000 years later and start throwing stones at Paul for what his motivation is. Let's don't do that. 
Paul went to Jerusalem. It looks for the world like he was supposed to go there, that the Holy Spirit was leading there. But he knew that it was going to be a dangerous situation for him. If missionaries avoided every potentially dangerous situation, you'd never go out anywhere. And so Paul went anyway, and he knew since that was a potential problem, he better get this stuff down in writing while he had the opportunity to do it. As it turns out, he goes to prison, and he's got plenty of opportunity to write after that. But he doesn't know that at this time. So I look at those three reasons for Paul having written it. Romans is incredible in that the great contribution of this letter to the body of the New Testament revelation is a reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. A reasoned explanation of how God's righteousness can become man's possession. How do I become justified before God? Or how do I gain a right standing before God? And there's really only two possibilities, real possibilities. One is I earn it. I do it the old-fashioned way. You know, whatever brokerage house said that. I forgot. Smith Barney, something. I did it the old-fashioned We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. That's one way that people attempt to get a right standing before God. Paul says no. Paul says, you're not going to earn a right standing before God. It's got to be by grace through faith. And so that's, uh, that is one of Romans' uh, great contributions, Paul's great contribution in the book of Romans to the New Testament body of material. Now, all of us, I hope all of us, I think all of us, have already trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. And the vast majority of Paul's readers had already trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life. They had already been justified by grace through faith. So what's the point in Paul outlining exactly how it happened? For that matter, why are we studying the book of Romans? Not, not just why did he write it to them. Why are we bothering studying tonight, last, time, last, last few weeks, about the immoral person needing a Savior? Tonight, about the moral person that needs a Savior. The Jew's going to need a Savior. Why should we bother? It's like, oh yeah, I already know that. Well, there is a reason why believers should study the doctrine of salvation. And believe me, Romans is about much more than that. That just so happens to be the section that we're in right now. Believers benefit from understanding this very important truth. And I would say in, in one word, it's about grace. Grace. If you don't hear anything else that I say tonight, l listen to this so carefully. Without an understanding of grace, let me put it, actually, without an understanding and appreciation of grace, you are going to go nowhere in your spiritual life. And I'm not using hyperbole there. It's not an exaggeration. I mean every word of that, every syllable of that, literally. Without an understanding and appreciation of grace, you are going to go nowhere in your spiritual life. If somehow you think that you were among the few who didn't need salvation quite as badly as other people needed it, then I can tell you right now, you haven't come very far in your post-salvation spiritual life. That's one of the major reasons why Christians study salvation. Some of the greatest preachers of the past, in fact, the greatest ones that we know of in the past, took almost every message back through the cross. Spurgeon in England... The Prince of Preachers did exactly that. Harry Ironsides did, did something very similar to that. They took every message back through the cross 
and grace. Because if we don't have an understanding and appreciation of grace that, that is a foundation for the rest of the things that we know, then we're never going to move in the direction and end up where we want to be. And that's why we need to study soteriology. I know you're already saved. I know you already know that you need a Savior. <laughs> but did you know you needed a Savior just as bad as the immoral person? And can you fully appreciate that? Can you appreciate that your sins, while made it well, perhaps more civilized and more acceptable in polite society, do you realize that those sins were, were just as worthy of condemnation as the sins of the homosexual and the adulterer and the rapist and the murderer and on and on and on, like he talks about in 118 through 32? The book of Romans is distinctive amongst Paul's writings uh, for several reasons. But it is one of the few letters that he wrote to churches that he had no personal knowledge of, no personal contact with. The other one, does anybody know what it is off the top of their head? Colossians. That's the only other epistle that he wrote where he had really virtually no knowledge of the people that he was writing to. So because of this, Romans is more formal and less personal than most of Paul's other epistles. Remember, an epistle is a letter. So if I was writing a letter to someone that I knew real well, I'm going to probably include some facts that I wouldn't include if I was writing to someone that I'd never met. If I was writing, say one of you moved away, I might mention some things about the church, or I might mention some things about my family, or I might say, you know, David had a baseball game, and Marcia did this, because you would know who David and Marcia were, or Bruce had something about that, or I might mention Cindy's name, because you'd have a context for that. But now, if I was writing to someone in... in uh, Ukraine or Kazakhstan or Brazil, I, I probably wouldn't mention a whole lot of personal things. It would probably be a little bit more formal. If there was something personal mentioned, it would be something personal that I had, uh, some interaction I'd had with them. And so that's why Paul, Paul's letter to the Romans is more formal than some of the letters that we've studied in the past. It's because uh, he didn't know these people personally. Now, in front of you, you have one uh, sheet one hand out that, that has on the top of it message statement. Message statement. If you pull that one out, message statements are usually one or two sentence statements about a book, a chapter, or a paragraph that that tell the the author, Holy Spirit being the divine author, Paul in this case being the human authors, what are they trying to say? What's the point? And the point of Romans as a whole, and the message statements are very carefully worded. This one is carefully worded. I want you to read it carefully with me, and then I'm going to ask you, as after you finish, where do you think we are in this message statement right now? Because remember, this message statement covers the book as a whole. So here's your assignment as I read through this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, where do you think we are in this message statement right now? Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his Son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. That's Paul's message. If he had to summarize the whole book into one sentence, a message statement, that's what he'd say. Now, where do you think we are right now? Feel free to answer. Where do you think we are right now in this message statement? Right, salvation for helpless sinners. You see, so 
Romans has 16 chapters, but right now we're talking about God providing salvation specifically for the helpless sinners. And there's going to be three categories of those helpless sinners, and that's another chart that you have in front of you that says condemnation, mankind's universal need for righteousness. If you'll pull that one out. That runs from 118 to 320. The first one we've already studied, and that's the condemnation of the unrighteous person. We've called him the immoralist in 118 through uh, 32. The second category, and the one that we're in right now, is the condemnation of the moralist. That's in 2, 1 through 16. And finally, even the Jew needs a Savior, the condemnation of the, whole, uh, the Jew in 2, 17 through 3, 8. And then Paul sums it up, the condemnation of the whole world, in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And the key verse is Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul's going to say it again in a, in a, in a different section of the epistle. But for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's where we are in this um, great epistle. We're under the helpless sinners part of that message statement. Now, an essential application, so that's what Paul is saying. What should we do with it? And again, these are issues covering the whole book. In view of the greatness of the salvation that God has provided, that's what I mentioned a minute ago, we have to understand how great our salvation was. And unless we understand grace, we won't understand that. In view of that, I could put it another way, in view of what we learn in chapters 1 through 5, in view of the greatness of the salvation that God has provided, as Romans reveals, we, as Paul, have a duty, or if you prefer the word responsibility, I kind of do, but a duty or responsibility to communicate this good news to the world. We do this both by lip and by life, by explanation and by example. Our living example will reflect death to self as well as life to God. Now, both the message statement... And the essential application will take us about two years, maybe two and a half years to unpack, especially just doing this on Wednesday nights. But I want you to, to, to continue to keep those statements in front of you. In fact, and I know this wouldn't be the easiest thing for you to do, but in, it would be a very beneficial thing for you to do. If you don't commit it to memory, at least be able to recognize it when you hear it. It will help you to understand the details that we give you each week as we go through this uh, this particular passage. Now, there's one more chart I'd like for you to pull out now. The, the last one I'm going to ask you to wait. The one with the arrows on it, I want you to keep that handy. But pull out the one that's got the, the word Romans on top of it, and I want you to again see where we are in the overall flow of the book. We're talking about now the, the very second section in from the left. There was an introduction that ran from 1-1 to 117, and and in 118 through 320, Paul is speaking about justification, the need for it, or as your other chart said, mankind's universal need for righteousness. That says the same thing. So you see where we are in the overall flow of the book of Romans. Let me pause. Don't, don't be embarrassed if you have a question. Is everybody kind of up to speed on that? So far, you realize Paul's writing to, to believers. He's writing, though, about an unbeliever's need for salvation. 
But even though he's writing about an unbeliever, he's still writing to you and to me. It helps us to understand this because we can more fully appreciate, understand, and appreciate the doctrine of grace, which um, motivates us to tell others about Christ and to live a life uh, that is consistent with the price that was paid for our salvation. Big picture items. Now, keep the chart with the arrows handy, and let's take a look now again at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and tonight then we'll slip into verses 4 and 5. If you have any other questions as we go along, please ask them, because that's how I know where everybody's um, understanding is, and it's my goal not to get through this material, but to really teach it to you so that we can function under this essential application. Now, one more time, by way of background, we're looking at the condemnation of the world, the universal need for righteousness. And in the past few weeks, we've been looking at the condemnation of the unrighteous person. We've, we've, turned him, we've termed him the immoralist. But last week, we began a look at the condemnation of the moralist. I hope that you didn't really identify too much with the immoralist. But maybe you would identify with this moralist. Maybe before you came to Christ, you were a pretty good person. I mean, maybe not that bad. Uh, you know, sure, you you committed a few sins, but you'd never murdered anybody. Uh, you certainly had never stolen, at least not overtly. Uh, you know, had never committed adultery, those kind of things. And so you say, well, I know I, I needed a Savior because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'll buy that, but I really didn't need a Savior quite as bad. Paul puts a stop to that thinking right away. Listen to what he says. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. One might ask why we categorize those into two different categories. If what Paul's saying is actually accurate, we do the same thing, so why not call them all immoralists? It has to do with outward appearance. In 118-32, we learn that man suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God, which led to idolatry, which led to immorality, which finally resulted in animosity toward God. This isn't a progression in innocence. It's a rebellion toward the Creator. What Paul's saying, it's not for lack of knowledge or lack of an opportunity. People reject God because they are rebelling against God. Now, while it's easy to amen the immoralist, nobody, and nobody's going to argue that the immoralist doesn't need a Savior. But what about the moralist who's not really all that bad? The moralist would attempt to absolve himself of the guilt associated with the immoralist because he hasn't sunk to the gutter level like the immoralist has. So he must be okay with God. And Paul says, no, you're not okay with God because you do the same things. Now, in outline form, in verses 1 through 16, it'll be outlined like this. Paul says we're going to be judged according to three principles of reality. First, according uh, three principles of di- divine justice. 
First, according to reality in 1 through 5. Second, according to works in 6 through 11. And third, according to obedience in 12 through 16. According to reality, according to works, and according to obedience. The reason I swung back by and wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page is, you think it's been a little challenging up till now? Wait till we get to verses two, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, when Paul talks about us uh, being uh, judged according to our works. Uh, that will be a, a very challenging passage, and we have to all be on the same page before we get there. Otherwise, you're going to think Paul contradicted himself all over the place, that he writes the salvations by grace through faith in uh, Ephesians, that he writes the salvations by grace through faith in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 of, of Romans. But in chapter 2, he writes that it's by works. So there'll be difficulties that will continue to come, so I want everybody to be on the same page. And if we have any questions, please ask them. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, there's a, a great likelihood that that applies to all three categories of men. Not just the immoralist, but the moralist also has knowledge about God, and he has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. The Jew has knowledge about God and has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness as well. Now, pull out the, the, the chart with the arrows on it, and, and I want you to, to look at one of the mistakes that they are making. In verses one, chapter 1, verses 24 through 32... We learn that the immoralist is currently under the wrath of God. The immoralist is currently under the wrath of God and is experiencing the manifestations of the wrath of God right now. There'll be more to come in the future. They haven't seen anything yet. If they think the wrath of God is bad now while they're here on earth, just wait till they leave this earth and go to hell and really experience the wrath of God. But they are currently experiencing a form of the wrath of God right now. Three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, the passage says that God gave them over. And that's part of his wrath. He gave them over to degrading passions. He gave them over to, to impurity. He gave them over to a depraved mind. So... What I've tried to represent by a solid arrow on the top is the immoralist is currently experiencing the wrath of God and will continue to experience it even in the future. The moralist, though, is not currently experiencing the wrath of God. That's why I've expressed that with a dotted line, which... which um, in the word underneath it says delay, they will experience the wrath of God. But they're currently not experiencing it. And because they're currently not experiencing it, like the immoral person was, because they're not being wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, then they assume that everything's okay. But it's not. Paul's going to tell us in verses 4 and 5 that the cause of the delay is the kindness, forbearance, and patience of God. And the reason for the delay is just so they'll repent. But they're confused now, like a lot of moral people are. 
They think, listen, my life's going pretty good right now. I've got two cars. I've got a nice house. I've got a job. Everybody's relatively healthy. You're telling me I have a need? That's what the morals would say. I'll never forget one night. I was at a meeting of a professional society. It happened to be not a, not a theological society, but husbands and wives were both there. This was a group that it was very much into Eastern philosophy and uh, health, wealth, and prosperity type of thing, that if you were really in tune with the universe, then you would be wealthy and prosperous. And I never forget, one of the ladies was telling him, her husband was a physician, she was uh, telling a story about this couple that came into their office and attempted to tell them about Jesus. And it was it just this sarcasm, she was just disgusted by the whole thing. They were telling me about Jesus and then how I needed Jesus. And she went through a bunch of real derogatory comments, but the worst one was, and she said, and then when they, when they walked out of the office, I walked over to the window and saw them drive away in a station wagon. I almost threw up. I mean, you can imagine me, this was 20 years ago, I was, I was not the, the kind-hearted, patient person that I am right now, and uh, it, it just didn't work. She figured, because she drove her Mercedes, that she was okay with God. She was relatively healthy, had a, a nice, large home, a professional husband with a good career. Everything must be okay. She's not under the wrath of God right now. Why would she need Jesus? See, she fits into this category here, right here, the moralist. She's a relatively moral person, prided herself in her own morality, and assumed because everything's going okay, everything is going to be okay in the future. Paul says, no, you're misinterpreting that delay in experiencing the wrath of God. If you're thinking, you may ask, well, wait a minute, why does... God allow the immoralist to experience his wrath right now and even more in the future? Why does he delay for the moralist? And the answer to that we'll see in Romans chapter 9, so you're going to have to wait a while. But the bottom line is, God's sovereignty does whatever the heck he wants to do. I can't answer the question as to why he chooses to delay the wrath of God. Now, you can have theories. One theory is, is because the sins of the immoralists put a nation in danger, whereas the sins of the moralists sometimes don't. You know. But we'll find out in that great chapter on sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So that's the second line on there. There is a delay. But there's a delay because God is kind. He's, ex he's expressing forbearance. He's patient with them. It doesn't mean he's weak. Something chaps me to no end. It's when, when people are kind and patient and weak, and other folks, the recipients of the kindness and the patience, I'm not kind, not me, that mean we, kind, patient, and forbearing. And people who are the recipients of that kindness, forbearance, and patience think that must mean they're weak. And they try to get away with whatever they want to get away with. That doesn't mean that at all. 
it takes strength to be patient. It takes strength to be kind. And it takes strength to exercise forbearance. And if you keep pushing someone who's kind and forbearing and patient, you keep pushing them and pushing them and pushing them, or her, and they finally say, in this case, God, you've pushed me all you're going to push me. I've given you all I'm going to give you. I was very patient with you. I was very kind with you. I was very forbearing with you. Now that's the end of you. And you say, oh, how unfair can you be? How mean are you? Well, God's not mean. He was kind. The purpose of this delay was to give them a chance to repent, to change their mind, and to change their behavior, and to change their mind. It's also interesting, he doesn't really mention this under the immoral category. He mentions repentance under the moral category, under the, under the moralist. Repentance is essentially a change of mind about Jesus Christ. In this case, it's a change of mind about their own status before Jesus Christ, and then a change of mind about Jesus Christ. Going back to my lady who didn't like, who didn't place the woman who drove away in a station wagon in very high esteem, she needs to repent. I mean, if John the Baptist were here, he would be yelling to her, repent, because she needs to change her mind. She needs to change her thinking, her attitude. Because she's not quite as close to God as she thinks she is. Because Paul says she does the same thing. This lady ought to know whether or not she'd murdered anyone. She ought to know whether or not she'd committed adultery. She ought to know whether or not she'd stolen. So what does Paul mean? You do the same things. Some key to understand here. Paul's not saying you're just as guilty because you judge those people who are guilty. I don't know how many people thought that. That's not what Paul's saying. Judging is a, is a sin on occasion, but to call sin, sin is not a sin in of itself. You understand that, don't you? To say that murder is a sin is not a sin. Okay? To say that a murderer is guilty of a sin is not a sin on your part. They're not judged, condemned, because they judge the other person. They're judged condemned because they do the same things. And that's what we discussed last week, the whole concept of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says there's an external form of the law and an internal form of the law. The external form is the one who commits adultery. The internal form is the one who looks upon the woman with lust. And Jesus says you're both equally guilty before God. That's what Paul's talking about in here, but we studied that last time. So Paul is right in their face in verse 4. Or do you think lightly? Are you... Are you taking advantage of his patience do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing or not understanding or not realizing that the kindness of god leads you or should lead you to repentance to a change of mind that's the purpose the cause of the delay the cause of the delay is the kindness forbearance and patience of god the reason for the delay is so that they would repent. But in verse 5, they're not going to. So these folks, and this gives you a glimpse of the moralist, and maybe what God thinks of the moralist. These folks have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. They don't think that they have a need. You can't be saved from something you don't think that, you, that, you, uh, that uh, is a problem for you. Some people say you ought not to ever mention sin in the presentation of the gospel. And I don't agree with that at all. And the reason I don't agree with it is because Paul doesn't agree with it. Nothing personal. 
the way Paul outlines this is he, pre- he presents, kind of like Larry Morey does, a bad news, good news approach. i got bad news for you. All of us are sinners and need a Savior, every one of us. And the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That's bad news. That's the truth. Yes, I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. I know he paid the penalty for our sins. But if you don't accept that penalty, you're still under sin. You're under the wrath of God. That's what this passage is teaching us. More about that. We've we've studied in the past more about it as we get to chapter 3. So these people don't feel like they have a need. They have a stubborn and unrepentant heart, which puts them in the same category as the immoralist. I got to tell you, which of these two categories do you think, on the whole, is the easiest to evangelize? It's the, it's the immoralist. It's the immoralist. Most of the time, an immoral person is ready for what you've got to say. It's the moral person that throws up the barrier, and it was the same in Paul's day. They have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. Whereas the immoralist knows good and well how rotten they are, and they're oftentimes looking for something better. That's why we don't want to play footsie with, with people who are immoralist and get down in the gutter and start being an immoralist with them or, or be afraid to tell them about Jesus. They want what, you're, what you have to say. They desperately need it. It's the moralist that's got to be broken down. It's the moralist that we would sometimes pray, Lord, please break their heart. Please break their stubborn and repentant heart. I have prayed this, and I don't feel the least bit bad about it. I think this is God's will. I have prayed that specific people would not have one moment's peace in their life until they come to Jesus Christ, until, until you break their heart, Father. Please give them not one moment's peace, not one moment's happiness. If that's what it's going to take to break their stubborn and rebellious heart so that they can come to Christ. You don't really have to pray that for the immoralists. They've already got plenty of uh, a lack of peace in their life. But not necessarily the moralist. They're a tough category. God's going to ju- judge everyone fairly. Today, justice isn't always fair, but in his own timing, God is going to judge everyone fairly. So, in summary, at least up to verse 5, the delay in judgment for the moralist should not be interpreted as there being no wrath on the way. There will be. And Paul says, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God in and we would have to take that, that can be taken both temporarily, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but also more specifically uh, in, in the future, the, the eschaton, the, the uh, great white throne judgment. So just because there's a delay, it shouldn't be interpreted as there's no judgment on the way. The delay should be used for repentance, a change of mind about the direction that they're going, and about Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we do realize that this is a a challenging portion of the Word of God, but we're so grateful that it's here. We pray for our own spiritual lives that we may truly understand grace and that we had a need for a Savior every bit as much as folks that we might think have a greater need. Father, I thank you for the riches that you've poured out upon us at Christ's expense. Help us to live the lives that are... uh, 
that are immersed in grace. Help us to show grace toward others. Help us to help us to be ambassadors for Christ, both with our words and with our works. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.